Ephesians 3. So as I, as I mentioned, I'm going to be starting a short sermon series uh, this morning. Um, and it is, it's, it's, the title of it is The Glory of God in the Church. Uh, and Ephesians 3 verse 21 is basically the series wrapped up in a few words. Uh, and this morning... We'll read Ephesians 3, verse 21. And we're, we're going to focus this morning and this evening basically on one word, and that's glory. And it, let it be an introduction today, an introduction to where we'll be going as we, um, as we look to see the glory of God in the church. Specifically, in our context, Ozarks Bible Church. So I, I want to look at I want to read verse 21 of Ephesians 3 and then I want to give us a few minutes a few seconds of silent prayer of asking God who is able to do far uh, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think that we 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 go and pray to that God the only God that he shows us his glory and then we'll move on from there so look at verse 21 To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Just a few minutes, a few seconds. Lord, deal bountiful with your servants, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. To you be glory for now and forever. Amen. Amen. To him be glory in the church. Uh God, I, I think I mentioned this last week, morning or evening, I don't remember. But God is a God who has revealed himself. Um, and he has done it from the beginning. God's purposed from the beginning to make himself known to his creatures, to his creation. He's not hidden. He's never been hidden per se. The heavens declare the glory of God. He's made himself known from the beginning in his creation to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He has ordained and purposed means by which he wants himself to be exalted, his glory to be known and exalted among all his people. Now, the Bible doesn't give us specifics about what that looked like 
with Adam and Eve and God in the garden. It doesn't give us great detail of how Adam and Eve beheld the glory of God, because they did to some degree. It's, and we, we understand that as they walked with him in the day of, in the cool of the garden. But we we also but what those details are a little bit blurry. But the details of the lack of glory that they saw after becomes very clear very quickly. After they've sinned, they're removed from the garden, they're cut cut off from the gloriousness of the garden, the gloriousness of God. They are removed from this tree that is the tree of life. And as you study the rest of Genesis, especially these next nine to ten chapters, you, it seems to appear that there's this growing distance between God and his, create, uh, his creatures. Like the glory that was known at one time is beginning to fade in their understanding. Genesis 6, it, it seems as if it's gone so far that the glory of God is so far removed from the heart of man that every intention and thought of man's heart is evil and against him. God himself. So God destroyed them with a flood. And even after that, in Genesis 11, it seems the gap even continues to grow because the people not not knowing the glory of God but seek to have glory for themselves attempt godlike power and build a city and a tower that reaches the heavens. God comes and ruins their plans and confuses them and disperses them. But it's as if that point in the narrative of Genesis that something happens. God, it's as if he's reminded in human terms that he is ready to make himself known again to his creatures. Genesis 12, God shows back up in his story and reveals himself to Abraham. And we find out later in Joshua, I believe, that God reveals himself to a man who wasn't worshiping God at the time, or at least not Yahweh alone, but was in a family of worshiping false gods. But God clearly makes himself known to Abraham, clearly reveals himself in such a way that Abraham leaves it all and follows God and God alone. He builds an altar at the end of Genesis 12 to Yahweh and called upon the name of the Lord. But it's interesting, it's not just God's desire to make himself known and his glory known to Abraham. What does he want to do through Abraham? Make himself known to the nations. Not just to Abraham, but a multitude of nations. And we kind of go back to that thought we had a few Sundays ago about that idea of individualistic Christianity. I'll just, I'll just tell you, I'm going to press in against that for a, for a long time. Because we live in a society that says it's all about you. And so that intrudes into our understanding of Christianity and following Christ. I want, I want us to think about it. God didn't come to Abraham just 
so that God and Abraham could have a relationship. He came to Abraham so that God could have the world. He didn't come to Abraham just so that Abraham could enjoy the benefits of eternal life, but he came so that the world would worship him. Habakkuk 2 says that the earth will be, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you understand that? We're not there yet. But this is God's purpose and desire that His glory fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And see, typically we 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 think too narrowly about salvation or, or about God's plan of redemption. We approach God's purposes of redemption with half a verse. We might say something true, but halfway, God desires all people to be saved. Stop. And then we make ministries and churches all with that mindset that there are people to be saved, which is true. But we must finish that verse. Does anybody know what the rest of that verse says? And come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Is that knowledge of truth just that they can be a Christian, just that they can be saved? No, that's just part of it. It's to come and know the truth of God. To know the glory of God. And the great motivation that I I have in mind for not just this sermon or this series, but that I feel that I'm called to in my pastoral ministry is to help you, the church, move from thinking about Christianity from the benefit of man to understanding that everything is about the glory of God. Everything. The sunrise this morning. The colors of the leaves as we await their turning. The expanse of the universe. The parts of an atom. All of it. For the glory of God. Every bit of it. God's covenant with Abraham for his glory. God sending his son The cross, the empty tomb, the church, your life, your salvation. It is all for the glory of God. And I think this is the key to life. The key to Christian life. The key to being in the will of God. Right? Which ultimately looked like what? Loving God and loving our neighbors the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the Word of God. What is God after? His glory. What should we be after? His glory. This is the key that unlocks the door to realizing the truth behind everything. It begins by understanding that God's purpose is God's glory. Everything He does 
is for his glory. And inevitably, that should be our purpose. An exaltation of his glory. Now that I want to stick with the key analogy that the idea that, that that the pursuit of God's glory is the key to everything. To have a key means that there was a locked door at some point. That we've been locked away from the truth of the glory of God. And that that door was locked at the fall. In the garden. Sin has cut us off, making us blind, deaf, dumb, and lame, hindering us to understand how great God is and how glorious He is. God has, God has worked, though, to rectify that through His Son. God has continued to rectify that. He's unlocked the door for us through the revealing of Himself by the Scriptures and ultimately in Christ and the giving of His Spirit one of my favorite verses, John 1.14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen what? His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Sin has cut us off, has locked us away from seeing and savoring the glory of God. But Christ has rectified that. But even with all that, the effects, of sin, uh, the effects of sin still plague our understanding of the glory of God. And one of the ways that he's done that is, hang on for a sec, through the church. Not he, let me back that up. Sin. One of the ways that sin has affected our understanding of the glory of God has been through the church. Now, when I say church, I, I need you to understand that. We can, we can say the word church and mean two different things. Okay? We can say the word church and mean the church you can see. We are a visible church. Ozark's Bible Church. The church down the road is a visible church. Is there... Is anybody willing to say that we or this church in our gathering is perfect? Absolutely not. Fallible. Same for that one down the road. Same for the ones up this road, that road. That is what we call the visible church or the local church. Um, That's the church I'm talking about. On the other hand, it's... There's also the universal church or the invisible church, the actual true members of the body of Christ, those whom God knows, those whom have the Spirit of God dwelt in them, those who have eternal life secured for eternity. And so theologically, we think and we discuss The church in these two different aspects. The local church, who could be a mixture of true believers and unbelievers. And then the full, universal, invisible church, who is made up of only true believers. What I want you to understand today is that there have been 
and always will be flaws in the visible church. Flaws. I had the word failure, but that seemed too... Um, too final because we understand that the church of God will not fail and the gates of hell will not prevail against it but there is definite flaws within the visible church within the local church and if you're not if you're not convinced of what I of, of my opinion when we look at the epistles of the New Testament the apostles writing letters to the visible local churches throughout that land, they were very aware that there were going to be possibilities. That not, not just that there were going to be possibilities, but there were going to be great flaws that were going to hinder and hurt those churches. Um, I'm going a little bit ahead of myself there. When you read the New Testament and especially the epistles, most of the time those flaws come through and the warnings that they give are about bad leaders or bad teachers, false teachers, bad doctrine. I went I, as a just an exercise. I went through every New Testament epistle this week one morning and wrote down every verse where there was a danger to the local visible church because of, 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 of something coming in. I had to I had a full page and I probably wasn't too too picky. I probably could have found a lot more. So we have to understand that one of the ways flaws comes into the vis- visible church are through even the leaders as Paul was leaving to go to Jerusalem. And he was leaving Ephesus, and he got the Ephesus elders together. What did he warn them of? Wolves. And where were they going to come from? Within. So he told them to be careful and to watch over the flock diligently. But then there there are also other warnings within the epistles where the warning isn't about the false teacher or the ungodly leader but that congregations would go astray. That congregations would wander from the truth. That they would hear a false gospel and receive it and exalt it above the true gospel. Or that they would acquire for themselves teachers that would water down the truth. And as you look at history, you understand that it's evident as well. And just quickly, I want to I want to pair two moments in history, church history, where this is so clear. The first one is in the Middle Ages and peaks around the 1500s, which ultimately leads to the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s. And there was a phrase within that period that came out of it, and I know I've mentioned it before, and it's tenebrux lux. In Latin, it means after darkness, light. 
And so in the flaws of the church in the Middle Ages up into the 1500s, it was described as darkness. And then the other point in history that I want to just take a second to think about pertaining to darkness within the church is today. Today. The darkness has seemed to creep back into the church. And I mean the visible church across the world. I want to read from I want to read to you um, a description from a pastor who is experiencing the darkness within the visible church. And I want you to think and see if you can figure out if it was written about the church in the 16th century or the 21st century. Okay. I want you to hang with me here. It's quite the description. Divine truth lay buried under a vast and dense cloud of darkness. True true religion has been corrupted by ungodly superstition. The worship of God has been corrupted by horrid blasphemies. Men and women intoxicated with a deadly confidence in their own works seek salvation anywhere than in Christ. The administration of the ordinances, the baptism and the Lord's Supper have been partly maimed and torn into pieces and profaned by the traffickings of gain. Pastors do vital injury to the church by living public lives of self-indulgence. And exercises tyranny over the souls and their cares, leading men like sheep to the slaughter. That was the 16th century. But I read it and I thought, that's today. That's today. I see no difference. But the conclusion that this pastor drew, and I change his words a little bit but this is pretty close, was that in this condition, God's glory is laid down. It is suppressed and hidden, pushed aside. God's glory, the priority of God and His purposes are made a second-class citizen in His church. And what does it take a back seat to? The glory of man. The glory of man. The flaws of the visible church play a major part in locking out the truth of prioritizing God's glory above all things. Because the flaws of man, whether they be false teachers or stray congregations, they are looking at the world and themselves for the glory of themselves. And that only means a degradation, a depression, a suppression of the glory of God. And I want to, and in all honesty, none of us have escaped being affected by this. None of us, not even me. None of us have escaped being corrupted by the glory of man. 
And therefore, this sermon series makes sense, is necessary and relevant. There's a, there was a phrase that came, if you're, if you're not familiar, if you didn't get to read the, the Sunday prep, it is October, which means it's Reformation Month. It's, it's the, the month of the year that we celebrate the Protestant Reformation, which, if you weren't aware, we're Protestants. And so it's sort of like an anniversary for us. Um, there, was a, there was a phrase, other than Tenebrook's Lux, there was also the phrase Semper Reformanda, which means always reforming, that the church is always reforming. Uh, as Christians, individually, do we ever get to a point where we're not hoping to always grow? Spiritually, in holiness, in our knowledge of who God is. If you ever get to a point where you feel like you've got enough, as you said earlier, you need a second opinion. Same thing goes for the group of gatherers together of saints. That we collectively never stop growing. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. So, what's our intention? To exalt. Well, first to know. To know the glory of God. And not to just be glory. You know, we just something we just say. No, to know the glory of God. To know the weight of it. And then to know that's our purpose in life. Our intention is to exalt the glory of God in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I feel the tension of life. And I know you do too. And you might be thinking, but Luke, I'm struggling right now. Work is difficult. Marriage is rough. The kids are not behaving. I'm battling physically a condition I don't know if I can overcome. How does exalting the glory of God in the church help me with all of that? Well, here's how I, I just need to lovingly remind you or help us to all see And this is this is my job as your pastor, as the shepherd, is to if our if our thought is I don't need a sermon series on the glory of God in the church because I have this problem, this problem, and this problem, a question like that reveals that we have work to do in understanding the glory of God. We have work to do in prioritizing that which is most important, the glory of God. We all have work to do because we all get there. We all go there. The key to Christian living is the glory of God. Our lives should be a constant pursuit of the glory of God in all things. How we do Monday, tomorrow at work, 
how we are handling our relationships with our spouses, how we're battling our sickness and diseases and all other physical hardships. We do those things as we pursue the glory of God. So imagine a race, okay? You've got a long-distance race, and it's not, a, it's not on, a, on an oval track, but the track is, it looks a lot like life, right? Valleys, peaks, maybe a scary dog every now and then. Our eyes, our mind, our strength is to be towards the finish line, the ultimate purpose. And the ultimate purpose of your life is the glory of God. And so when you come to a hill or you meet that dog, if you are only thinking about the hill and the dog, you are going to have the hardest time battling that obstacle. But if you keep your mind and know that your purpose isn't just the hill or the dog, but it is finishing, it is the end, it is the glory of God, that motivates you to do and beat I don't mean the dog. I mean the obstacle. (laughs) What you're encountering in your life. The glory of God is our highest priority. When when we... Okay, that, that is sort of first and foremost for us to know today and forever. That the glory of God is his highest priority and should be and is our highest priority. And here's what I want you to understand. Is that in our pursuit of the glory of God, you can be sure of these three things. Suffering, hope, and joy. In your pursuit of exalting the glory of God, you will inevitably go through suffering, joy, and hope. And that's made clear all throughout the scriptures. But maybe not so, maybe not as clear as Romans 5 when Paul writes, we rejoice in the hope, the expectation of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why is this? Because when we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in the midst of suffering, God is redeeming the suffering for the sake of eternal good. You do not suffer in vain. As a Christian, you suffer for the glory of God and He is in His gloriousness working that out for your eternal good. Working all things together for the good for those who love Him and are called according to To his purpose. And therefore we know this truth. That. The sufferings of this world are not compared to the glory. That is awaiting us. Glory of God. But why emphasize the glory of God in the church? And we're we're winding down. Why do we care about the glory of God? It's what, it's what Ephesians 2 or 3.21 says. To him be glory in the church. Do you remember Habakkuk 2? That 
the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. He does it through the church. That's how he's going to do it. It is the church that he will use to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory like the waters cover the sea. The church of Jesus Christ. Go therefore, right, and make disciples. Where? Of the nations. All nations. All the nations. The glory of God will cover the earth. And he tells the church to go and do it. This is what we at Ozarks Bible Church are a part of. That stunned me this morning as I was thinking through that. God is going to cover the earth with his glory, and he has called us to do that. Us. We get to play a part in that. This is what we're participating in. We are one small local church participating in a worldwide Eternal event. A movement of churches, local churches across the world, exalting the glory of God as a visible representation of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? That a local church is a visible representation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is a visible representation of what? The glory of God. God wants His glory to be made known. God has revealed His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. But guess what, guys? Jesus left. And that leaves us. But He didn't leave us. He gave us His Spirit. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this as he was preaching through the book of Ephesians. There is nothing that so proclaims. Okay, so remember, Romans 8 said, uh, your glory is in the heavens. Psalm 19 says, your heavens declare, the heavens declare the glory of God. And that's great. And if you think about how beautiful it will be in a few weeks here, that ought to stir up in your heart the glory of God. The beauty, the the worth, that what he could make could be so beautiful, but what he makes that's so beautiful isn't even an atomic size amount of his glory. But yet, what Martin Lloyd-Jones sees as he's preaching through Ephesians, as glorious and beautiful as God's creation is, he says there's nothing that so proclaims the glory of God As the Christian church, the body of which Christ himself is the head. That's what that's what we're after. Right. That's what seeking to set forth Christ is. Seeking to set forth the glory of God. So what will we what will we come into in the next few weeks? I'm not really sure how long we're going to go through this. At least four weeks, maybe five, maybe six. But here are 
just to conclude, here are some things that we will be stumbling across. Uh, beginning this morning and in this evening. Understand Number one, understanding the glory of God. It's going to be a big focus this evening. I, I, we're going to take a deep dive into having a biblical understanding of the glory of God. Because I shouted it a lot this morning. But I want to make sure that we actually understand what it means. And then as we move forward, within the next week or so, understanding, number two, understanding the church of Jesus Christ exists as the living temple of the glory of God. Right? We are a living temple of the glory of God. Third, we're going to look to and understand how the church does that. How the church exist and operates as a living temple of the glory of God, to make known the glory of God. And this is where we're going to get into a little bit more of the details. And two of the ways that you're going to understand that we do this is that it's not just coming together, singing songs and praying and, and having, hearing a sermon and going on and eating once a month. But we're called to do things as the church. Two of them... The sort of set the, the groundwork for all of it. Well, they're kind of the same thing, but we're, we're, we're going to be guarding the gospel or the good deposit, as Paul tells Timothy. Or, yeah, this is the same thing, basically. Or what Jude tells his uh, the, the people that he wrote to, to contend, to contend for the faith. To contend for the faith. And out of that, we're going to look at some things that probably don't get talked about a lot and how we're going to guard the gospel and contend for the faith. We're going to talk about church polity. You ever heard of that word? It just means church governance. We have a way that our church is governed. All churches do. And I want us to have a better understanding of why we do it the way we do it, see it in Scripture, and also have an understanding why we don't do it the way other people do it. So we're going to look at that. And, at, and coming out of that, you're going to get a little bit of the responsibilities of the elders of the church. Which at this point is just me. We'll also do a little bit of um, a looking at the duties and responsibilities of the members of the church. And what you do is when you put those two together... The responsibilities of the elders and the responsibilities of the members, you then have the church government, the church polity, how the church operates, how the church guards the good deposit and contends for the faith. But see, in all of that, you could put this big title that says discipleship, right? Caring for one another, because all of that gets wrapped up together. We could even use the other D word discipline, which again is just another form of discipleship, which is a form of guarding the gospel and contending for the faith and looking to glorify God in the church. We'll spend some time talking about just to see how that plays itself out in Ozark's Bible Church in our pursuit of exalting the glory of God in Fulton County. That's our big, that's what we just, we just have to understand. Like, we're a local church here. That doesn't mean we're not playing a role 
across the nations, praise be to God, we get to. We, we've, we've been given the opportunity to give to uh, organizations like uh, HeartCry, who, who, who is taking the gospel to the nations. But we have to understand that the glory, of God, the glory of God has to fill Fulton County too. And we get to play a part in that. We're going to see how all that ties together. Uh, we're going to really get into some weeds as well. So, bab- Baptists, why we why we why we uh, baptize only believers? That comes. All this is coming together. Um, why we see ourselves and operate as Congregationalists, which is our form of church government. How all of that comes together. How those functions play their role in the glory of God being held and exalted in Ozarks Bible Church. And all that will kind of wait. And the fourth thing is we'll weave and wave in some church history thinking about the Reformation because the majority of the way that we practice our assembly has everything to do with what came out of the Protestant Reformation. Um, and so we'll be touching a little bit of that and how that opened the doors to things like congregationalism and believer's baptism and English translations of the Bible. We'll do much of that in the evening. We're going to do a, probably a lot of heavy work in the evening. Um, but that that's our approach over the next three or four, five, six weeks. Um Let me just conclude by restating the key theme or the key to this series, but not just to this series, but to the Christian life and to being the church. And if you don't, if you're, if you don't know Christ, you play no part in this. The glory of God will be made known to you on the final day. And apart from faith in Christ, the glory of God will crush you. And everybody in here has heard the gospel. And if you are not in Christ, it's not because you haven't heard me say it. It's because you've ran from it. Or you've not submitted to it. Submit to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And know His glory. God's priority is the exaltation of His own glory. Therefore, our priority should be to pursue His glory above all things, in all things, and in all ways. Sounds a lot like Romans 11. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word today and Moving forward, we ask that we would know more of your glory. And so what we're asking is that you would 
graciously show yourself to us. And we give thanks to you that as you protected Moses, you've protected us and hid us in Jesus Christ so that we might know your glory and live. Weigh it upon our hearts so that as we, no matter what we do, Lord, we would do it for your glory. For Christ's sake, amen.